Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me today. Yesterday was the 25th of Shvat, and it marked 83 years since the murder of Avraham Yair Stern, the founder of the Lehi, or the Freedom Fighters for Israel, sometimes known as the Stern Gang. During those pre-state days before 1948, you had three underground movements, the Haganah, the Etzel, and the Lehi. And Yair founded the Lehi, which was, let's say, the most fanatic of them all. And even though he was considered this super extremist, fanatic, radical at the time, today, Israeli leaders, they go to his uh, gravesite and make nice speeches about him. And that's why you can't really ever understand life or reality or the world from reading the newspaper. Because if you read the newspaper, it's not just, it's not just that it's biased and it's, uh, you know, leftist or liberal, whatever. The problem is that you're not getting any perspective of history. You're getting one day and another day. Each day you read something and you throw it out until the next day. Then you throw that one out. So the newspaper is always churning out their trek. But in the meantime, there's no historical perspective. There's no context. It's only later on when you look back and say, oh, then you start to understand what was going on. And that's why Ben Hecht, who was a big, big supporter of the Irgun, with his money and with his time and with his health, he gave it all to the Irgun. He wrote once that if somebody wants to understand what's going on in the world by reading a newspaper, well, that's like trying to find out what time it is by looking at the second hand of a clock. That is, you have no perspective, you have no context. A news flash here, another news flash, breaking news, this story just in, this just in, another breaking story. That's how the newsrooms work. They hypnotize you that way. Keep you on your toes. All these little hits back and forth. And in the end, you have no context, no perspective. And you see that with somebody like Yaya Stern, who was murdered by the British, he didn't have one supporter. He didn't have a place to hide. He was the dissident among dissidents. When he left the Irgun and established the Lehi, his movement was considered totally lunatic. And he was hated by Jew and Gentile alike. To his enemies, he was a fanatic. But to his tiny band of followers who really knew him. He was a selfless leader who inspired admiration. And so this man, whose name became synonymous with the bomb and the gun, he was actually one of the most unlikely persons to be cast in the role he played. In the year of his death, he was 35 years old, slender, strikingly handsome with jet black hair. He spoke with a soft voice and had tremendous charm. He was a poet. He spoke perfect Russian and Polish. He had read Homer in the original. He knew Italian well, and his Hebrew was out of the ordinary. A stranger meeting him would never dream that he was a terrorist. And also, he didn't indulge in fiery speeches. He always seemed very calm. His manners were exquisite. But under all that velvet, the man was steel. Okay, so now what was his ideology? What made people think he was so extreme? Well, first of all, he wasn't ashamed to say, that he wanted a Hebrew empire with the original boundaries promised to Abraham in the Bible. It's not an easy thing to say in those days. You got the British conquering you and you have a vision of a Hebrew empire with the original boundaries promised to Abraham in the Bible. 
After all, most of the underground members, they were just busy trying to fight the British and get them out. They weren't thinking afterwards what Israel's going to be like when the Jews are in charge. The other underground leaders really didn't have a vision of what a Jewish state would look like after we achieved independence. Their whole goal was to achieve independence, but they didn't put too much thought into what kind of country is it going to be. But Yair had it all figured out. He had as part of his platform to build the Holy Temple. So that's what he was striving for, this empire stretching from the Euphrates to the Nile. And everything he did was to get to that goal. He formed the Irgun in 1937. Yeah, him and David Raziel, they actually formed the Irgun, the same Irgun he eventually walked out on. Now, something else he did. In 1938, in the years before the war, he had a plan to bring from Poland 40,000 Jews who would invade Palestine and throw the British out. Yeah, 40,000 tough Jews who were being trained and they were gonna, what he called, invade Palestine and chuck the British out of there. What messed that plan up is that World War II broke out and the Jews in Poland were wiped out. Now, another great Jewish leader at that time was, of course, Zev Jabotinsky. But Yair, he wasn't into the revisionist philosophies. Jabotinsky wasn't his cup of tea. What was the difference? Well, Zev Jabotinsky believed that, yeah, you have to have action, but you also have to have a lot of worldwide diplomacy. Jabotinsky's view was that Jewish independence would have to go through the British in some way. He wasn't like Weizmann and Ben-Gurion. He wasn't in bed with them, but he felt that there had to be some kind of worldwide diplomatic action, just like the Balfour Declaration started things and the British made promises, etc. And so Jabotinsky saw the Irgun as the armed force that's needed to protect Jews while they created their majority in Palestine. And if the underground movement, the Irgun, which is sometimes called the Etzel, if they did have to revolt against the British, which they did, Jabotinsky insisted that they shouldn't just bomb indiscriminately. They have to damage only British civil institutions. The machinery of the government, post offices, police stations, stuff like that, but not military installations. And, and Jabotinsky wanted that they warn the British beforehand so that all personnel could be evacuated and no lives lost. But Yair Stern, he regarded all this as dangerous romanticism. So he wasn't a Hasid of Jabotinsky like the others were, like Begin or David Raziel. Now Stern's dear friend, David Raziel, Jewish hero too, we should talk about him one day. They broke apart on the issue of cooperation with the British during World War II. Raziel said, let's have a ceasefire with the British and help the British fight the Nazis. And then later on, we'll go back and fight the British. Stern disagreed. He said, this is the time to fight the British. When they're busy with the Nazis, let's hit them now when they're vulnerable. And so on that issue, which is really a machlok of the Shem Shemayim. And so on that issue, there was the split. Stern walked out of the Etzel and established the Lechi. And I want to just read a couple of lines from Yair Stern's poetry, very impassioned phrases. He writes like this, we are struck with madness for the kingdom, he writes. And he writes, yes, we shall pray for freedom. We shall pray with the revolver, the machine gun, and the mine. And when David Raziel and his fellow Etzel guys went and joined the British to help them fight the Nazis, and they were sent on a special mission in Iraq when Raziel got killed there, Stern could not understand this cooperation with the British. This is what he wrote. The British are fighting for British independence. The French, for French independence. The Czechs, 
for Czech independence. Everybody for their own freedom. But the Jews are fighting for British freedom. And when they fight for their own independence, that is to liberate Palestine from the British, they find Germany and Britain arrayed against them. One is crushing them where they are. That's Germany crushing us in Europe. The other, the British, preventing us from reaching refuge. Why should we cooperate in our own enslavement? Is it I who am insane or the others? Now, it's important to understand the historical context to see how crazy Ayer appeared because the British, they were like the only ones fighting the Nazis at the time. America hadn't entered the war yet. And so it was hard to be anti-British to such an extent. Nobody was calling them conquerors. Yair was the first one to even use that term against them. And the Jewish establishment, even Jabotinsky, they were thinking that after the war ends, the British will come through on their promises, starting from the Balfour Declaration, and help establish a Jewish state. They didn't seem that bad at the time. They certainly seemed better than the Turks, who had been here for hundreds of years, these cruel Muslim conquerors. And so they were considered more like a, an uncle who disappoints us. But he'll come around. That's what people were thinking. And so Yair Stern was basically alone, except for a very few number of followers. Most of them were in jail. Now, 12 days after Stern was murdered by the British in an apartment in Tel Aviv, there occurred an event that if it had happened when Stern was still alive, who knows? He might have got more sympathy. What happened? We had the tragedy of the SS Struma. And the episode of the Struma gave evidence that the white paper policy of the British to you know, limit immigration to Palestine, it was going to continue no matter what. What happened with the Struma? Well, the Struma was this ancient giant steamer ship that was really built to transport cattle. And it limped into Istanbul Harbor the day after Christmas in 1941. And the ship was designed to carry at most 200 persons. But on this day, it was jammed with nearly four times that number of Romanian Jews who were fleeing a Nazi nightmare as the wholesale massacre of the Jews had gotten underway. Somehow they had escaped the hell of Europe and were trying to enter Palestine. Anyway, so you have 800 Jews on this struma and it wheezes into the port. You have the passengers overflowing into the small deck where they were packed in like in cages to prevent them from falling overboard. Anyway, I don't want to even talk about the conditions. There was only one toilet to serve 800 passengers. Okay, so the ship waits at the dock for almost eight weeks while the Jewish agency and the Turkish governments are negotiating with the British if we can allow the refugees to enter Palestine or not. To make a long story short, the British did not allow it. They said there's a quota. We can't have illegal immigration. There's a certain quota and you can't pass that quota. And we can't let those Jews into Palestine. And on February 24th, 1942, the Struma had to go back to Auschwitz and it never made it because it virtually disintegrated. It just broke apart and sank within minutes, except for one survivor, all on board. 746 passengers, including 240 women and children, drowned. Now, if that episode had happened when Stern was still alive, he might have been less hunted and less hated and maybe even honored. At that point, people started to think, you know what? Maybe the British are just as bad as the Germans too. The British are just as bad as the Nazis. What's the difference? Yair, he might have been right. And that's how it always is when we're talking about great leaders with vision. At the time they're living, people, they can't handle their message. As Rabbi Gahan used to say, 
the truth is heavy and its carriers are few. But what happens is as time goes on, their message starts to resonate because the reality proves that they're right. That's what happened with the Ayer. As people started to realize the British more and more are bad guys. And the same thing happened with Rabbi Kahana. When he was alive, he was rejected by the mainstream, considered an extremist. And then October 7th happened. That was the wake-up call. Just like the Struma episode was the wake-up call for the people back then to grasp that maybe Yair wasn't such a fanatic. The October 7th massacre had the same effect on what people think of Rabbi Kahana. Last week, I went to that big event of Nachala, the sovereignty convention in B'nai Umar. And on my way back, I picked up a hitchhiker and he asked me where I'm from. I said, Kvar Tapuach. And he said to me out of the blue, did you know Rabbi Kahana? You see, Tapuach had a reputation back then of being a Kahani Yeshuv. And even though it's not that way anymore, unfortunately, people still think it is. Anyway, he asked if I knew Rabbi Kahana. And I was surprised by the question. I said, yeah, oh, yeah, of course. It's in his merit. I made Aliyah and I became a Balchuva and I learned his Torahs. And he said to me, boy, was he right. He was so right. So this fellow had read some of the rabbi's books. And after October 7th, just like the Patria and the Struma that sunk in 1942, that was like some kind of turning point. And so here too, people were starting to come around and say, you know what? Maybe Rabbi Gano was right. All those years we've been calling him a fanatic and an extremist and a racist and a hater and a nut. We were wrong and he was right. That's what happened with A.R. Stern. That's what's happening with Rabbi Kahana. And you really see it. You know, somebody started to put up Rabbi Kahana videos on YouTube. They'd been down for a long, long time. Our friend Michael Miller had made a fantastic YouTube channel. He had all Rabbi Kahana's videos up there and YouTube, of course, they took it down. But now they're getting posted up again on Rumble and on YouTube. And they're great videos. You have these debates and interviews with the rabbi and he's just telling it like it is. And I look at the comments and they're all for the rabbi. They're saying, wow, is he right? Rabbi Kahana was spot on. Everybody's saying it. And it was never like that before. If you looked at the comments on those Kahana videos a couple of years ago, most of them are just negative and nasty, but not anymore. You see, that's the self-sacrifice of the great leaders is that they say the truth and the people reject them at that time. They mock them. And by the way, they mock Jebatinsky too. Zev Jebatinsky warned about a Holocaust. He used the word Holocaust, warning the Jews of Poland to flee. Anyway, these great men, they're ridiculed. They're demonized for what they say. And part of their greatness is, is that they're willing to suffer in order that their beloved people come around to the truth of their message that much earlier. That is, they plant the seeds and the people don't see their truth at first, but because they planted those seeds, you see, the people start to come around. They start to understand the truth that much earlier when things start to happen. They plant those seeds of truth. For example, when Rabbi Kahana warned about the impending Holocaust that could befall the American Jew, he would explain and describe how it can happen in America. His final speech before being murdered was about that. He wrote a book, Time to Go Home. So he's given all the reasons how it can happen. Now, you might say, eh, I don't think so. But because he planted those seeds and it's in your mind, suddenly when you start to see the anti-Semitism coming to the fore, as it gets more open and virulent, because you heard him speak it, because he had planted those seeds, you come around to the realization that much earlier. Just as Yair was saying unpopular things, 
But he made the people understand that much earlier that the British are not going to give us a state. They have to be fought with. The state is only going to be established through the bomb and the gun. In any case, how important it is to know Jewish history, to know about those undergrounds, the I.S. Stearns, the Menachem Begins, the David Raziels, because it was in their merit that the Jewish state was established. It had nothing to do with the U.N. The U.N. vote, what was it worth? Israel didn't come into being because of a U.N. vote. It came into being because Jews fought and they blew the British out of the Holy Land and the U.N. vote was irrelevant. They blew the British out of the Holy Land and then defeated the five Arab armies that attacked them following that UN vote. Okay, let's move on to something else. This past Shabbat, we read uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments in Pasha Yitro. And if you want to know where the root of anti-Semitism really comes from, in a deeper sense, well, Torah was given on Mount Sinai, and the word in Hebrew for hate is Sinah. So Sinai and Sinah, it's almost the same word. And there you have the deep-seated reason why there's anti-Semitism. Because, because when the Jews received the Torah on Mount Sinai, it caused a jealousy. After all, we're the chosen people. little chutzpah dick to say that, right? But what are you going to do? It's written in the Bible. Anyway, the name of the Pasha is Pasha Yitro. And Yitro was a convert. He's the first convert to Judaism. He used to be the priest of Midian. He was a very important figure in Midian. But he left it all because he saw that the Torah was truth. And he became the father-in-law of Moses. Now, the beginning of the Parsha gets into what caused Yitro to convert. What turned him onto Judaism in the first place? It's just like this, the opening of the Parsha. Vayishma Yitro. And Yitro heard. So Rashi says what he heard. He heard about the Kriyat Yamsuf. He heard about the splitting of the Red Sea. Umelchemet Amalek. And the war against Amalek. Those were two incidents that happened when the Jews came out of Egypt. There was the splitting of the sea. And they were attacked by Amalek and they defeated Amalek. That's what turned them on. And the verse continues. He heard all that God had done for Moses and for the people of Israel. So what does it mean he heard all that God had done? So Rashi explains it. He heard about the falling of the manna, and he heard about the well, the miracles at the well. And again, he heard about Amalek. So the Jews' victory over Amalek in war that shows up twice. He was most impressed with that because, you know, if God is doing miracles for you, that's very impressive. But when the Jews got up and did something, when they fought and they defeated Amalek, that clinched it for him. And that's what we're always saying here on this show. The Gentile respects strength. We're not impressing anybody by shooting rubber bullets or dropping leaflets. No, no, no. When we beat down our enemy, when we trounce our enemy, that's when we get the respect. That's what convinced Yitro. And so when people are always concerned, what will the Goyim say? What will the nation say? What will the Gentiles say if we did this? If we bomb Gaza into smithereens? What will the Gentiles say? Everybody's worried. What will the Gentiles say if we do that? And they just don't understand Gentiles. If he's a good Gentile, he'll understand perfectly. And if he's not a good Gentile, who cares what he thinks? I care what those freaks on the college campuses think about us. We're supposed to care what that lesbian Rachel Maddow thinks about us? Who cares what they think? By trouncing the Muslim enemy, that would make us a light into the nations because every normal person wants us to do it. You might not hear about them. They're the silent majority, but it shouldn't matter to us. We have it all backwards. We think we're impressing the world by being nice. Well, you know what? David Amelech, he wasn't always nice. 
Moses, he wasn't always nice, like when he smote that Egyptian, like when he eliminated 3,000 from the Erevra for building the golden calf. There's a time to love and a time to hate. And if this isn't a time to hate, when you're talking about the Gazans, when is there? And speaking of David Melech, join my classes in Tanakh. I give a class once a week. You can hear it on uh, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. You can Google that, or you can come onto my website, LennyGoldberg.com, LennyGoldberg.com. And there you'll find a link to the Bible classes, to these podcasts, articles, books by Rabbi Meir Kahana. Don't forget to order your Haggadah of Passover, even though we haven't even gotten to Purim yet. Still, Passover is not that far off. And there's a Haggadah that Binyamin Kahana wrote a commentary on it. It's fabulous. I suggest you order it now. The mail's going really slow because half the country is at war and that includes the mailman. And so get back in touch with the sources, with the Tanakh. When the Bible is taught properly, you just can't go wrong. And you'll never have to watch Netflix again because the Bible's got it all. It's got violence, it's got romance, it's got drama. And most importantly, it's our story. It's the story of Am Yisrael. Okay, we're not done just yet. There's a lot more to say. In our Parsha, Parsha Vietro, right before Matan Torah, right before the Jews are given the Torah, we have the very famous verse, Vayachan Elahar, and they camped by the mountain. And the word camped is in singular. It should be plural, because we're talking about Am Yisrael. It should be Vayachanu Elahar. It's just Vayachan Elahar in singular form. And Rashi says there famously, Levachad Ishachad, one, as one man, as one heart. And that's very appropriate for what everybody's talking about all the time, unity. Unity has turned into the supreme value. We've heard it ever since the judicial reform debate came about. We're hearing it more during the war. And I hate to be a party pooper, but there's no such thing as carte blanche unity. The unity has to be around something. If it's around getting the Torah, like in Al-Pasha, as Vayachan Elahar, and they camped by the mountain. That's a very positive unity. It's a unity for receiving Torah. But if there's unification around a bad ideal or around evil, then that's not good. You don't want unity like that, do you? So it depends what the unity is around. There's no such thing as unity in a vacuum. So no, unity is not the supreme value. And so so Judaism, like everything else, really clashes with all the liberal fluff about unity being above all. Because unity is a positive Jewish value only when those who you are unifying yourself with don't openly and arrogantly deny and reject authentic Jewish values and Torah commands. You can't make unity with them. Not only is it not a mitzvah to unify under Jewish leaders who are un-Jewish and anti-Jewish and despise Judaism, but it's a great mitzvah to disperse them. That's the opposite of unity, to disperse them, to break away from them. And and that's what the rabbis say in Tractate Sanhedrin, page 71. The coming together of the righteous is good for them and good for the world. So the unity of the righteous, that's a great thing. It's good for them. It's good for the world. It's good for them because it gives them power. When you have unity, it gives you power for a positive value because they're righteous people. And the Mishnah continues, and the scattering of the wicked is good for them and good for the world. And when it comes to the wicked, you don't want unity. You want the scattering of the wicked, not the unity of the wicked, because again, unity is power. But power for what? We want it to be for positive things. And so the scattering of the wicked, it's good for them because it weakens them. And it's good for the world because the world doesn't want the unification of the wicked. That's what you had in the Tower of Babel. Everybody was one language, one people, and look what they did with it. And so we have to raise this issue because while everybody's calling for unity, 
The fact is the greatest danger to the Jewish people today in Israel and in the exile is these Jewish leaders in Israel and America, the anti-Jewish spiritual dregs of the earth. We don't want unity with them. We want to separate ourselves from them. Just like the Maccabees weren't looking to make unity with the Hellenists. And since this Peshabbat was the Parsha of Matan Torah, I want to play a small Devar Torah that Rabbi Ghana used to give on college campuses where he would speak to Jews to give them a little Jewish pride. Most of these Jews knew nothing about Judaism. I was one of those students when I heard Rabbi Ghana for the first time where I went to school. And before he gives over this Devar Torah, which is connected to the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, the rabbi is trying to reach out to these Jews on campus. It's at Minnesota University. He's trying to reach out to them and convince them to get more in touch with their heritage, with their Judaism, which they know nothing about. And so let's hear the rabbi doing some serious kiruv and then topping it off with a small Devar Torah. There's one thing that we have that no one else has, and that's the reason to be a Jew. The one thing that we have that no one else has is a Torah, a Torah given at Sinai, when Sinai was not a hospital, but a mountain. And we Jews took that magnificent heritage and we threw it away. For what? For the suburbs? For the right to be equal? So you young people, this summer, take off from school. Take off from school. Go to Israel. And enroll in a yeshiva. If you don't like it, quit. If you like it, stay. And don't come back. Write to your parents and say, listen, I've come home. I'm staying. Not going to make them happy, but it's not the first time they haven't made, made them happy, but this time for something good. And stay there. Who says every Jew has to have a BA? Who says that every Jew has to be doctor, lawyer, CPA, or marry one? Wait, what do you say? You can learn to work with your hands. You can learn to plant a tree on a Jewish settlement in Judea and Samaria, which belongs to us and not to them. And get married and have a dozen babies. We owe Hitler two and a half million babies. Let's pay him back with interest. Everyone a gem, everyone a diamond. And then 30 years from now, when you're sitting in your settlement, which is now a town, our town, and you talk to your children and your grandchildren in Hebrew, and you tell them how it was when you first began, and they look up at you, and in Hebrew they say, Eze Saba, what a grandfather, Eze Safta, what a grandmother. Then you know what being Jewish is. Then you know what Jewish pride is. The country is ours. It will never go under. Don't be afraid of Saddam. Don't be afraid of Arafat. They're nothing. I'm a little worried about leftist Jews, but they're also nothing. Come home. Come home. Come home. And I want to finish with a Dvar Torah as a rabbi. The Talmud tells us that when God wanted to give the Torah to the Jewish people, so all the uh, highest mountains, the loftiest mountains, all came, and each one said, give me the honor. I want the honor. Give it on my peak. And God said, no, I have a small mountain. It's called Sinai. And I'm giving it on that small mountain to teach the Jew a lesson, to be humble. Small mountain, humble. Now, that's a nice lesson, right? goes over well with Hillel. Now, the Ger Rebbe, a great, great scholar and also smart, the Ger Rebbe asked an obvious question, which I'm sure some of the clever ones here have already thought of. He said, if God wanted to teach the Jew to be humble, why did he give the Torah in a valley? You don't get lower. That, that's about the lowest, the most humble that one can get. Good question, right? And the answer he, he gave was, 
God wanted to teach the Jews two lessons. One, be humble. Two, don't be too humble. We Jews are in valleys. Nobody steps on us. Those days are gone forever. We're mountains. We're not arrogant mountains, but we are mountains. And know that. That was Rabbi Kahana on college campus instilling some Jewish pride into young Jews who need it so badly. That's it for me. Tune in next week for another show. In the meantime, click the bottom of this page to hear my Bible classes because that too is some instant Jewish pride. See you next week. Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.